as you probably know, this is a, a talk that's part of a series of talks about the basic teachings of the Buddha, or what I call unteachings of the Buddha. That is to say, series that tries to bring us to the understanding that what the Buddha was doing was to encourage us primarily to dismantle, to deconstruct, if you wish to use a postmodern word, the structures that we have been constructing in our mind throughout our lives. This is the second uh, meeting of that series. In the first meeting, and many of you were there, I don't know whether everybody, but many of you were there, I, I covered two topics. Or should I say uncovered two topics? The thing is with Anna here. <laughs> the first topic was an invitation to unlearn the pursuit of knowledge. That is the stuffing of our minds with more and more facts and concepts and instead to open up to see the world with a fresh mind. That was the invitation of the first part. The second part was more specific, less general. It was an invitation to unlearn the presumption of permanence in things, of steadiness in things. Today's talk is in a way a continuation of that theme. All these talks are, of course, connecting with, connected with each other. Still, it's okay if you come today and you haven't come last week, but uh, if you have come last week, you'll see that there's a continuity. This second day, then, this talk today, is about unlearning clinging. And the topic, this topic is very clearly connected with the second topic of last time, with the topic of unlearning permanence. Because clinging only makes sense if we assume permanence, if we soon assume steadiness. Uh, one illustration of that. In the back of my house up in Rheinberg, there's a beautiful wooded area with uh, some rocks that you can climb. And sometimes when I walk there, in order to climb the rocks, I reach out to the branch to hold on to that branch. And it's fine if the branch is solid and steady. But if it's weak and collapses easily, so will I. 
my clinging will be of no use whatsoever. Clinging to that branch and to most things in life requires the assumption of steadiness of that which we cling to in order to make ourselves steady. And uh, therefore, the unlearning of permanence has as its corollary, necessary corollary, the unlearning of clinging. What's the point? So this is the general thrust of today's talk. But let, let me start from the beginning. How do we begin to learn to cling? I can use myself as an example, as I sometimes do. I did learn to cling very early in life. Myself, like many other kids at that early age, are constantly being reprimanded by their parents because they forget their hats, their watches, their jackets. Nowadays, of course, their cell phones. And was not true in my time. And of course, it does make some sense to hold on to things for practical reasons. Surely, of course. A little while ago, I just saw somebody walking around with a bicycle wheel. You could see why he was carrying the bicycle wheel, right? Protecting his bicycle. It makes sense, surely. That's not the problem. The problem is a certain intensity that goes with that. I remember being quite young and going to the beach with my parents and my three sisters. And my oldest sister lost a watch. It became a tragedy. I still remember it today. The intensity of the regret. The guilt. Maybe, maybe we've had experiences like that. Where the, the, the problem goes well beyond the loss of a little item. And, and that kind of intensity I understand in my family. Particularly in my father. My father became an orphan at age two or three. And he also lost sometime later his only brother. So all that was left for him was his grandmother who looked after him. But it certainly marked him by the fear of loss, of loss, of course. I feel great compassion for that and also for myself who got transferred that fear too. My father was a writer, and among other things, he wrote about 
a French writer called Anatole France. Um, he wrote a biography of him. And uh, Anatole France, by the way, was a Nobel Prize winner and before any of you were born, even before I was born, which is quite a long time ago. And a few years ago, looking up my father's book, I found a reference to Buddhism. So, surprise. So, I went to the source, that was Anatole France. And, and here's what Anatole France, who was kind of my grandfather, because my father always thought about him as Abuelito France. He felt it was his father, my grandfather. It turns out that this, uh, Anatole France was in Paris, there was a, a watching a, a labor movement parade and uh, things got a little rough and he sought refuge in this building. It turned out to be the Buddhist Museum, which I visited too in Paris. And there was a statue of Sakyamuni and all these books and while he waited for things to clear in the streets, he read something apparently. That's the way he puts it. And, and this is a conclusion he comes up with. And I told France, and, and, and surely my father too, as he was quoting him. He says, Sakyamuni, calls him that, was the best of men. He was both a sage and a saint. But his wisdom was not made for the active races of Europe. For those human families so strong in the sense of life. The sovereign remedy which he offers for universal evil is unsuited to our temperament. He invites us to renunciation and we desire action. He t teaches us to desire nothing and in us desire is stronger than life. Finally, as a reward for our efforts, he promises us nirvana, absolute rest. And the mere idea of this rest, rest fills up us with horror. Sakyamuni came not for us. By him we shall not be saved. He is nonetheless the friend and counselor to, of the best and wisest. To those who know how to listen to him, he offers great and solemn lessons. Interesting. Fascinating for me. To just see caught in, in that paragraph contradictions in my life, in my upbringing. You know, desire is what gets you going. Clinging is what makes it all worthwhile. It's bizarre. 
to read that for me. He says, Francis, that he or even us are incapable or at least unwilling to let go of clinging. What I've shared about my life and a little bit like a glimpse of my life and my father's life, of course, is very general. I'm not, uh, and of course, France is saying that. It's just a Western mind is not attuned to renunciation. And, of course, in this culture of consumerism, the intensity of grasping is much greater than I had ever dreamed in my youth. I often get the privilege of driving around some of my grandchildren in the car, and so I listen to their conversations and... uh, It's strange, you know. Almost every sentence starts with I want, I like, I need, I hate. And from there on, the life is weaved, if you wish. Of course, it's true that in the modern culture one is not holding up so tightly to individual items because so many of the items are disposable. True. But we do cling to the supply of replacement. Just this last weekend, I caught myself being very anxious because the batteries in my flashlight were down. I mean, surely it's, it's very appropriate to charge the batteries. They said, well, recharge them also. I would charge them. All of us may have disposable, so you have a supply. But I could catch in me a deeper anxiety than that. I couldn't wait, couldn't wait to put the battery in the charger. I, I recognize that feeling. And I recognize the relief when the batteries were finally charged. So, it's a postmodern kind of clinging, but still clinging. Not to something that's permanent, but to the replacement of that which is impermanent. (laughs) Same thing. Same permanence. And then there is this, of course, the other thing that uh, we cling on to very much so nowadays is a sense of security in this climate of terror. I I found an ad 
that maybe illustrate the climate of the times. Although this ad is previous to 9-11, but still it's all there. I don't know how much, you, how well you can see it. And it was for an insurance company of sorts. It says, we've been through turbulent times before. And you can see there's a, a sea, a big storm, sharks all over the place. Um, and, uh, um, a thunderstorm and boats sinking. But in the middle of all of that, there's a lifesaver and a protected area and uh, men, uh, one man at least, holding on to a briefcase. You can see that's loaded with money. And uh, other people in a nice sailboat. And, and you see that the spirit of clinging there, clinging to that safe space. And I, I find this illustration very interesting because really there's no true safety there, you see. The sharks can easily come from under the water inside the lifesaver. It's an illusion of safety that we cling to. That's what it's the problem. Because it's totally futile. Things deteriorate. Replacements sometimes are not available. And then, of course, in, in an, this is in the material area. But then there's an area of relationships, which is a very, very important area of clinging. And we insist that this is for, for life, for permanent. We've refused to see the statistics, of course. And we cling to ideas. And, and we, we just refuse to see them. Ideas, too. The viability has a limited life as well. I mean, just, just think of all the people throughout the world who clung to the idea of communism. And, and what happened with communism? In the Soviet Union, at least. But none of this seems to have that much effect in persuading us to stop clinging. Just like a, an alcoholic can get drunk and have a Horrendous time. And the next day, go for another drink anyway. As if that's going to solve anything. This is what uh, the Buddha says. Whatever people cling to in the world, it is through that that Mara pursues them. Mara, as you probably know, is a personification of the devil in, in the Buddhist lore. The tempter. One of the things that Mara excels in is persuading us to cultivate the self, the me, a sense of me. 
and which is going to be the topic of the next meeting, the next uh, class in two weeks. But for the time being, I do want to make a, a connection between clinging and the self. And I'll do that by going over very briefly through a very fundamental teaching of the Buddha, which is called the teaching of dependent arising, also called dependent origination or codependent arising, codependent origination, paticca samuppara in the language of the Buddha. Many different words and a variety of slightly different versions and I'll give you my own. I'm not claiming to offer you the words of the Buddha, but the way I, I see it. The Buddha says, oops, basically, that consciousness, let me see if I can, consciousness, makes contact with an object. Object could be a form, could be a taste, could be a smell, could be an idea, whatever. And contact occurs. I don't know whether... Can, can you discern the words? Anyway, I'm going over it myself with words. Now, contact leads to it, it, it feels. It can feel pleasant, PL, unpleasant, or in between. I'll, I'll not discuss the in between now, for simplicity's sake. The next step in this dependent arising is that the I comes in and says, I feel. And let's say that it's pleasant. And from the pleasant comes, I want. I grasp. I cling. This sequence really becomes a tool for fabricating the I. You can see in this step, it feels, becomes I feel. And so the I. And the stronger the grasping, the bigger the I. Sorry, it's not very well drawn, but uh, you get the idea. This. Well, another way of doing this is, in, and you see, the I now 
start circulating. And, and, and in fact, these sequences really are not linear, but they become a spiral. <laughs> now the eye goes back because the eye, the eye has gotten so big that now the eye feels very powerful here. And so the second time around, this becomes more powerful. And it goes on and on and on. But of course, it all depends on the permanence of that which we cling to, like the weak branches of the trees, or the branches of the trees that I hold myself on not to fall when I'm walking. When that thing collapses, the eye is gone. And this thing collapses very often. Very often. Relationships, ideas, objects, even with the disposable replacements. And so, down we go. We have to find something else. Another relationship. Whatever. Something else to hold on to. And even if we are successful and we have lots of money, like Mr. Trump, and uh, we can sort of have a, a very fluid flow here. I bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> There's still an end. And that end is called death. So, more about that next week. Next, in two weeks. Now for the critical part of this talk. How in earth do we unlearn to cling? Well, because this is an addiction, clinging is an addiction, dependent origination is an addiction, we are in the situation of an alcoholic. Until we sober up, there's no chance to see through the whole thing. So, we need to have the moments of sobering up. With the clinging, it's not very difficult. You must have seen it. No matter how much of a clinger you or I am, how avid clinger we are, we sit, and there's so many moments when it's as if we forgot to cling. We're just sitting there, just just willing to be present with the moment, sobering up. So that's that's one part that's essential. Times when the addiction is not in charge of us. When the I is not in charge of us. 
And then, the other thing that we need to wake up to is the futility of all this clinging. Now, it's not the futility of relationships. It's not the futility of having things and having money or whatever. It's the futility of clinging to it. It's a world of difference. It's a world of difference. Sometimes, because we've got so used to cling to the people we love, in our family, in our relationships, even in friendships, it doesn't occur to us that we could relate in a different way. Without the charge of cleaning. So we need to bring home to our hearts and minds the understanding that the way the conviction more than hence the conviction that the way to get out of the turmoil of the unsatisfactoriness of clinging of that horrendous ocean there is not by ratcheting up our clinging not by building more bulwarks like that lifesaver but by letting go of our clinging and recognizing the truth of things, the turmoil of things. Of course I don't recommend swimming next to sharks, but, um, um, you know, the bad weather, we can be in bad weather, sure. We can function in bad weather, sure. We need to start trying it out. As the Thai teacher Ajahn Chah says, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. So we, we need to try that. And then may, maybe, maybe we go one more step. As Ajahn Chah said, if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. The rewards of letting go are extraordinary. In peace, sense of freedom, sense of joy. The joy of knowing that our well-being does not depend on holding tighter to, the, to that which is impermanent anyway. That there is another way. And that other way is being 
with the truth of what is. The Buddha says it very eloquently. When he says, by knowing the impermanence, change, fading away, and cessation of forms. Now he's talking about forms in this paragraph. One sees as it actually is, with proper wisdom, that forms, both formerly and now, are all impermanent, suffering, and subject to change, joy arises. Such joy as this is called joy based on renunciation. And he goes on to repeat this paragraph referring not just to forms but then to sounds, to odors, to flavors, to tangible things we can touch and finally to mind objects. So again about mind objects he says by knowing the impermanence, change, fading away, and cessation of mind objects, meaning ideas, etc., one sees as it actually is, with proper wisdom, that mind objects, both formerly and now, are, are all impermanent, suffering and subject to change. Then joy arises. Such joy as this is called joy based on renunciation. joy based on renunciation, on letting go, on unlearning to cling, on dropping all simulation, and just trusting things as they are. Let's sit for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.